What a joy to be with you. I want to welcome those who are visiting us. Be welcome. Would you please open your Bibles to Exodus? Exodus chapter 6. And if you can, I would like to invite you to stand. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Let's read verses 6 through 8. Chapter 6 of Exodus. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray. How firm a foundation indeed we have in your word. What more? Can he say nothing? We have the full revelation. And we thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. Undeserving sinners to hear your voice. And yet, in love and in grace, in mercy, compassion, tenderness, gentleness, you speak to us. And you call us out of darkness into light. And through your mighty voice, you break the stony heart and the deaf ear so that we may love you and hear your sweet voice. So we spoke to you through the singing and now we beg you to speak to us, Lord. Help us. Help us to stand in awe of you. We pray for other churches in Salem that your people would stand in awe of you and that you'd feed your flock here in Salem, Lord. Help your under shepherds to be faithful to you. And not only Salem, but throughout the whole United States and Canada, Mexico, Central America, South America, Africa, Asia, Europe, everywhere around the globe, Lord. Build up your people. Help us to stand united in the gospel, striving side by side. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Today we start working through the Mosaic Covenant. And the challenge is vast. 
because the ocean before us is vast. How to navigate through this mighty and deep waters called the Mosaic Covenant. The body of waters known as Mosaic Covenant flows and controls much of the rest of the Scriptures. You think about, you have Genesis and Exodus. Those are just the first two books of the Bible. And right after Exodus, the rest will make no sense if you don't grasp what the Lord is doing right here in Exodus and the Mosaic Covenant. Think about that. That's the second book of the Bible. If we are following the, our Christian English canon, we have 39 books. So the next 37 books will make no sense if you don't understand what's taking place here. Or if you're following the Tanakh, the Hebrew, you have 24. So the next 22 books will make no sense. And also the life of Christ will make no sense. So much of what's taking place in the New Testament will make no sense. So the challenge is great, especially with the limitation we have to expand the Mosaic Covenant. So my prayer is that the Lord will help me and you. So just as a brief review, as we are trying to see the big picture of the Bible, try to understand how the Bible is put together, the drama of redemption, and you're looking at this drama as a comedy, we behold how this whole story is held together through six major covenants. The six major covenants are like the backbone of the storyline of the scriptures. We have the Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and then the new one with Christ. And today we are going to start working through the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant have different names or titles, and each title or name is very important. So we call the Mosaic Covenant because of Moses. He's the mediator, similar to how we call the Adamic or Noahic or Davidic, because they are the mediators of the covenant, and they play a very important role in mediating the covenant between God and His people. It's also called the Sinai Covenant or Sinaitic Covenant. Why? Because that's where the covenant is established, Mount Sinai, as we will see. It's called the Old Covenant in contrast with the New Covenant. It's also called the Torah or the Torah of Moses or the law, how we translate in English. But I think Torah is a better translation. And I just ask you to not worry about the door there. We, we have people who take care of the door. Don't, don't be distracted about these things. There's nothing better than hearing God speaking to us. Amen. So... Another name is the Torah, or Torah of Moses, and that's where it gets complicated with the New Testament, because a lot of times our 
we hear about the law and the law and the law, and sometimes the law is good, sometimes the law is not that good. So you need to understand when it's referring to law as covenant, when it's referring to law as certain commandments, or when it's referring to the law as the whole Old Testament, the Torah. It's also called the covenant at Horeb in Deuteronomy, the covenant at Horeb. Why Horeb? That's another name for Sinai. And it's also called the first covenant. The author of Hebrews talks about the first covenant. Or the covenant with Israel also. So those are just titles of the same covenant. Here's the outline of this morning's sermon. And I truly need to keep an eye on the clock here. don't want to be disrespectful towards you. And we have a lot to cover. So... First of all, we're going to be looking at the flow of the drama of redemption, how we arrive at the Mosaic Covenant. And then we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus. Since this covenant is in the book of Exodus, we're going to be looking at the content and then the structure of Exodus, how it helps us to understand this covenant. And then today we're going to start looking, and here's the great challenge I have, cover Exodus 1 through 18 this morning. 18 chapters of Exodus. And then next Lord's Day we continue through this outline here. So let's look at the flow, the flow of the drum of redemption. So as we come to Exodus, that's very important. Exodus comes after what? Genesis. So the story is flowing. We can never come to Exodus and forget that there is Genesis. <laughs> These books, they walk together. There are many parallel. So as you, you open Exodus, you see how this book is connected to Genesis. Genesis ends with Israel in Egypt. Exodus begins with Israel where? In Egypt. We have all the language of being fruitful and multiplying. In Genesis, we saw the promise of slavery and affliction, and that's exactly what we see in Exodus. God had promised Abraham that they would be enslaved, and then he would bring them after 400 years, and he would come with the plunder from that nation. And that's exactly what we see taking, taking place in Exodus, and many other similarities and parallels that help us to see the Exodus is flowing from Genesis. That's important, because we cannot be chopping out the drama of Scriptures. I like what one scholar writes, Desmond Alexander, he says, Exodus ought, not, ought to be read, must be read as part of the larger story that runs from Genesis to Kings. That would be, if you're looking at the Tanakh, the structure of the Old Testament, that would be the Torah, the first five books, and then the early prophets from Genesis to Kings. When this wider canvas is taken into consideration, Yahweh's coming to live among the Israelites has every appearance of reversing, in part at least, the consequence of Adam and Eve's betrayal of God in the Garden of Eden. Meaning the, the covenant with Israel through Moses is inseparable from beginning Genesis 1, 2, and 3, moving with Noah and then Abraham. It's all connected. And this insep inseparable relationship between 
Genesis and Exodus is very important because as you read the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis has crucial prophecies about the Messiah, and not only prophecies, but also intentional foreshadowings or types of who the Savior, Savior will be. So, for example, as you read the book of Genesis, you know that the seed, the Savior who will come to deliver God's people and remake God's people into a kingdom of priests, He's a man. He will defeat the serpent through suffering. He will be raised by His Father and will be made a king and priest to rule over Israel and the nations. That's what the book of Genesis tells us. This king-priest will be from the line of whom? Judah. That's important because Moses is not from the line of Judah. He will come in the last days, Genesis 39. And he will bring a return to Edenic abundance. So as you see, the Messianic vision in Genesis presents the Savior as someone who is not feeding with the book of Exodus. So we can see that the Mosaic Covenant and all its elements, beautiful as they are, think about the tabernacle, the laws, the sacrificial system, the priesthood, all these glorious and majestic things were never intended to be an end in itself, but the means to something greater. Because Genesis is telling us that's not yet. The ultimate salvation will come in the last days with the Messiah who is from the line of Judah, Therefore, Moses is not the Savior, as will become clear as you walk through the story of the Bible. To quote Alexander again, he says, The book of Exodus contributes, contributes in a very significant way to our understanding of God's redemptive plan for all humanity. We see in the micro-story of Exodus the macro-story of the Bible. God comes as a Savior and King to redeem His people from satanic control, to ransom them from death, and to purify them from defilement, to sanctify them so that they may be restored to the status that was lost by Adam and Eve, becoming a royal priesthood and a holy nation. Yet, while God's rescue of the Israelites from Egypt models the process of salvation, it only foreshadows something greater to come. A greater exodus is anticipated, one that will bring to fulfillment God's creation plan to dwell on earth with His people. This comes through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, which results ultimately in the creation of the new Jerusalem witnessed by John in Revelation. That's very important. As crucial as the Mosaic Covenant the book of Exodus is, was never intended by God to be the ultimate salvation, deliverance. It's pointing to something greater. As we come to the book of Exodus, here's where the Mosaic Covenant is narrated, described. So it's important for us to understand a little bit about this book. The title Exodus comes from the Greek word exodos. Literally means the way out or departure coming out of somewhere, a place. We see this word used in 
Exodus 19.1, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, right there, the Exodus. And if I were to ask you, please briefly define the book of Exodus. With one sentence, define the book of Exodus. What is the book of Exodus all about? How would you describe that? Somebody asked you, what is the book of Exodus all about? Most people, most Christians will say what? The book of Exodus is about the deliverance from Egypt. It's the Exodus from the slavery under Pharaoh. And there is a sense that's true. But I would argue that the way out or the departure is something much greater than just deliverance from Egypt. I argue that the main theme, the main truth that this book is painting to us is the way out or the departure from the ignorance and the absence of God. That's what the book is all about. It's not just being delivered from Egypt. Yahweh is delivering His people from the darkness of ignorance of who He is and from the darkness of the absence of His presence. Think about why it takes so long for God to deliver His people. Ten plagues. Why ten plagues? Why all that time? He could have killed Pharaoh and delivered His people in less than one second. Why all those signs and wonders? He explains. He's making himself known. People are ignorant. They don't know who the Lord is. So he's showing who he is. We saw in Genesis, people are in exile from God's presence. And this exile from God's presence leads to lack of knowledge of who God is. Therefore, we see in the book of Exodus this reverse. God makes himself known in order to bring them into his presence. Knowledge and presence of God. How to outline the book of Exodus as we are moving, as we are going to work through the Mosaic Covenant. How can we outline this book? There are many ways to outline the book of Exodus. One is a very simple one. And you think about redemption. Leading to covenant, leading to dwelling. God redeems a people, God makes a covenant with these people, and God dwells with these people. And that's basically the Christian life. The Lord redeems us, establishes a covenant with us. Remember Jesus, He redeems, He dies as the Passover lamb, establishes the new covenant, He ascends into heaven, and sends His Holy Spirit to dwell with His people. Another way of looking at the book of Exodus is thinking about creation, cosmogony. And there is a pattern, a three steps, just like in Genesis, we see in Exodus. And redemption and creation are always, are always together. So you see the part one, we have Exodus out of Egypt, so through the waters. Part two is the covenant to the mountain leading to worship. Life in God's house. That was very similar to the creation account. We have passing through Genesis 1 and 2, the darkness and the waters, to eat in the mountain of God, to worship. That's, and that's exactly what we see with Noah, and then now we see here with Israel. 
But I think that there is a better way to outline the book of Exodus, and that will help us to understand the Mosaic Covenant even better. I think that the two themes of knowledge and presence are key to understand the book of Exodus and the covenant that God is making with His people. So we saw that the book of Genesis shows us how humanity is farther and farther away from God's presence. And the separation from God's presence leads to humanity's increasing ignorance of God. The light of the knowledge of God fading into ever-deepening darkness. That's what we see from Genesis 3 to the beginning of Exodus. People don't know who the Lord is. You have one, two, three characters here and there who know who the Lord is. You have Joseph, a faithful one. But how many people are being faithful to the Lord besides Joseph? You see a decreasing in the knowledge of God. And God is, as you walk through Genesis, less and less present with His people. So I think the best way to outline is we have the restoration of the knowledge of the Lord, Exodus 1 through 18, and then we have the restoration of the presence of the, the Lord in Exodus 19 through 40. So from Genesis to Exodus, we see a pattern of growing distance between God and humanity. Even think about geographically, physically, and spiritually, the book of Genesis begins with man dwelling with life in God's presence, and the book of Genesis ends how? Death of Joseph in Egypt. Not only that, but then he's buried. He, Sheol, the grave. So that completely opposite of the beginning of Genesis. From life with God to death in Egypt. So the Mosaic Covenant reveals the Lord's solution for this twofold problem. Lord will, the Lord will make Himself know and then bring these people who know Him now to dwell with Him. So as we think about the knowledge of God in the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus begins telling us that there was a new king in Egypt, and he didn't know who. Joseph. Meaning, he did not know the God of Joseph. So here we have a picture of this Pharaoh representing humanity as humanity ignorant, lacking knowledge of who God is. And it's not only the Pharaoh or the new king, the Israelites don't know who God is. They never cry out to God. You don't see the name of God there in the first two chapters, but the midwives who fear God. That's fascinating. So we have Israel and the nations showing themselves right in the beginning of Exodus that they don't know who the Lord is. And in chapter 5, verse 2, that's a key question. Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Therefore, I will not let Israel go. Implying what? If I know who the Lord is, I will let Israel go. And that's what the Lord will do. He will reveal Himself who He is. All that takes place in Exodus 3 through 18, in one sense, is God's way of making Himself known to the whole world. You can read many verses in chapters 3 through 18, and it's God making Himself known, the knowledge of the Lord. So we see that in Exodus chapter 6, 
let me go back here. Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, we read in the beginning, the Lord says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Knowledge and presence. I will be with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Presence and knowledge. Chapter 7, verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against you. Chapter 8, verse 10. Moses said, be as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So you see, the Lord is truly revealing Himself. People don't know who He is. And as I said earlier, that's why it takes so long for Him to deliver His people. He's showing Himself. That's why He talks about the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. He needs to. Otherwise, there is no battle. It's too easy and He cannot reveal Himself. So He hardens Pharaoh's heart as if for, alright, let's go for another, another round here. We need to go another round. I'm not done with you. I need to show who I am. Redeemer, creator. And that's what he's doing through these first 18 chapters. Revealing himself. And then we move to chapters 19 through 40. And then we see the presence of God. The Lord brings them to the mountain, and He comes down. He's dwelling in that mountain, and He gives instruction for the tabernacle. So the focus change. Not that there is no focus on the knowledge of God. Of course there is. But the primary emphasis there is the presence of God. And you might say, oh, that's cool. Huh, that's nice. If that's what you're thinking, you missed the whole point. Because knowledge and presence are the hearts of the covenant. That's the heart of a covenantal relationship. You marry a person, why? Because you know that person, and you want to know that person more and more, and you want to dwell with that person. Personal, intimate knowledge and presence. That's the heart of a covenant. Why why do you get married? Because you don't want to abuse that person? Because you love that person, you know that person, and you want to know that person even more, and you want to dwell with that person. You want to spend the rest of your life dwelling with that person. That's the heart of the covenant, knowledge and presence. And that's all we see taking place. And this revelation of the knowledge and presence of the Lord is not only for Israel, but for the whole world. Israel, through the Mosaic Covenant, is to be God's instrument as a kingdom of priests to bless the nations and teach them about Yahweh and bring them into a relationship with Him. And that's what we see, especially as we come to the promise of the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31. He promised that the heart of the New Covenant is, I will be their God, they will be my people, implying what? Presence, dwelling, God dwelling with His people. And then He promises, and they shall know Me. They shall know Me. Morales writes, In sum, through the Exodus deliverance, the nations were to know Yahweh as the maker of heaven and earth, who had recreated a new humanity, Israel, in order to fulfill His original purpose, 
opening a way for humanity to dwell in his presence. Oh, under the shadow of the Babylonian tower, the nations scattered in exile would behold a wonder. Israel redeemed to dwell with God. So how vital it is for us to understand these two major themes that are holding Exodus together, the knowledge and the presence of God. Because that was lost in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, man lost the knowledge and the presence. First, the presence leading to what? The knowledge. The farther they were from God, the less they knew about the Lord. And now, through this covenant, following after Abraham, the Lord is reversing what took place there in Genesis 3. Okay, so let's move to the major bodies of revelation in relation to the Mosaic Covenant. We are going to be looking at Exodus 1 through 18, then Exodus 19 through 40, and then briefly Deuteronomy 29. Not today, but Deuteronomy 29 because there is a renewal of this same covenant. So, as we go through Exodus 1 through 18, and that's the preparation for the covenant that takes place starting chapter 19 through 24. That's when the covenant is confirmed, ratified, made. As you walk through Genesis 1 through 18, you see how the Lord is preparing His people for this covenant by revealing Himself, who He is. Who is this God that we are entering a covenant with? And that's what we see in Exodus 1 through 18. Exodus chapter 1 is a bridge between... Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. And you can see that is a bridge between Genesis and Exodus. Even it starts with a genealogy. What takes us to Genesis. To understand this genealogy, you've got to go back to Genesis. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Also, we see many similarities of vocabulary, themes in Exodus 1, taking us back to Genesis. So that's the preparation. That's the background for what's about to take place. Exodus chapter 2, we have the life, the birth here of the covenant mediator. What is chapter 2 all about? Look in your Bibles. What is chapter 2 of Exodus all about? Moses, yes. Moses will be the mediator. It's amazing how in his life he embodies, similar to Abraham as a covenant mediator, he embodies the life of Israel. He's a microscope figure relating to Israel. So he passes through the waters. And then where does God meet with him? Mount Sinai for worship. That's Moses' life. What happens to Israel? They pass through the waters to the mountain for worship. So, the life of the mediator here is a microcosm for the exodus that will take place. Similarly, Jesus, our mediator, will also represent his people. Jesus takes on humanity to perfectly represent his people. Similarly, Moses unwillingly and not knowing he was representing his people. We have Pharaoh who represents the snake god. Remember what Pharaoh had in his head? A cobra, a snake. And he's trying to kill the seed of the woman. So taking us back to Genesis. 
Exodus 3. Look in your Bibles. Exodus chapter 3. We need to move fast. I need you, not you. (laughs) Exodus chapter 3. That's called the Holy of Holies in the book of Exodus and even in the whole Old Testament. That's where God reveals Himself to Moses. And He reveals His name to Moses as Yahweh. And often we think that I am the I am. But I am is, I would say it's not all the way right. Especially when you understand the Hebrew language and the verb to be, construction. The better way to understand his name, he reveals himself to Moses, I am present with you. That's the meaning. I'm with you. It's fascinating, the Lord comes to Moses and he reveals himself how? What does Moses see? What does Moses see? Yes, fire. Do you remember in Genesis 15 how the Lord reveals Himself to Abraham before the Exodus? Passing through the dead animals. What was that? The fire that takes us back. Oh, it's about to take place now. That fire that will lead God's people out of, out of captivity. And the Lord reveals Himself as the one who is present with His people. Remember, the, the, Israelites, the Israelites did not need a lesson on the eternality or a city of God. They need to know that God was with them. And that's what the name I Am means. I'm present with you. That's why when you read Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, as he's developing this new exodus that will take place, he talks about the Lord being present with his people. I will be with you when you go through the fiery trials. When you pass through the waters, I'll be there with you. That's what I, I am means. I'm with you. That's what we're saying. Fear not, I'm with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and I will still give thee aid. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For what? I will be with thee. That's what I am means. I'm with you. I'm present with you. And then Genesis, look in your Bibles, Genesis 7, starting uh, Exodus chapter 7, not Genesis, Exodus chapter 7 through 12, here you have the ten, we call the ten plagues, I think a better title would be the ten signs and wonders. That's what God is performing here, signs and wonders to reveal himself, to make himself known. That's what's taking place here. God is creating a new people and at the same time decreating Egypt. You think about what's taking place. He's creating Israel, his firstborn, and at the same time he's doing what with Egypt? A decreation, darkness, no order, no structure. And at the same time he's bringing Israel to be his firstborn. Ah... Uh, here, yeah, let's move on and jump to chapter 12. That's very important. Chapter 12 of Exodus. What do we have in Exodus 12? That's the heart of the Exodus, the Passover. And the Passover is of primary importance to understand the rest of scriptures, to understand the New Testament, Jesus' role as the sacrificial lamb. And right now, and as, you, as you come to Exodus 12, you see that God is showing something very important. The victory 
will come through an atoning sacrifice. The Lord is showing Israel that victory will come through the death of a substitute. Somebody needs to die in their place in order for them to be delivered. Israel is redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Similar to Exodus, Genesis 15. Do you remember Genesis 15? What happened to Isaac? Sorry, Genesis 22. Genesis 22, what happens to Isaac? The firstborn, the true firstborn of Abraham is spared by an animal. He's saved by an animal. And similar we see here in Exodus. One scholar says, For Israel's salvation, the sea dragon was conquered by a slain lamb. Death leads to life. And then we come to Exodus 14 through 15. Exodus 14 and 15. And we are going to stop here and try to finish this section. 14 and 15. In Exodus 14, what do we have in Exodus 14? Look in your Bibles. The crossing of the Red Sea. And then in Exodus 15, what do you have there? The Song of Moses. Celebrating, explaining what took place through hymns and through a song what the Lord is doing. Exodus 14 is clearly a description of Israel being resurrected through a new creation process. The great sea dragon, Rahab, Egypt, is crushed under the Lord's water. You have all those imageries as you put together Exodus 14 and 15. You have all those images of creation. You have water. You have darkness. Then you have the Lord coming as a light. Waters opening. Dry land, the Ruach, the Spirit of God, all these things showing us, taking us back to Genesis creation. God is doing a creation work here. Redemption and creation work hand in hand. That's what the Lord is doing. And then as we come to Exodus 15, we have this wonderful, beautiful hymn, the Song of Moses, or the Song at the Sea, also it's called. And this song, Exodus 15, I see basically as a mini Exodus. It's a miniature of the book of Exodus right here in chapter 15. And we see that because in verses 1 through 12, it's about the knowledge of the Lord. And then in verses 13 through 18, it's about the presence of the Lord. So looking at Exodus 15, verse 11. Exodus chapter 15, verse 11. Look how they're singing. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Meaning, now they know who Yahweh is. They have tasted who the Lord is. Do you remember the beginning? They had no idea who He was. What is the name of our Father's God? And now they're singing His name. They know who He is. Yahweh is a man of war. He's awesome, glorious. 
For the first time, Israel herself proclaims that the Lord is His name. The contrast with the beginning of Exodus when they did not know who the Lord was. And now after all these events, all these signs and wonders, now they know who Yahweh is. And then we move to, so we see the knowledge of God in verses 1 through 12, and then verses 13 through 18, we have the presence of God. And you see clearly, look at verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love, in your chesed, the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to where? To your holy abode. You will bring, verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh is pictured, the Lord is pictured as a shepherd, a king, bringing his people from death to where? To where? To the mountain, the presence of the Lord. That's where he is. To the mountain of the Lord. From the Sheol, from Egypt, from death, this wonderful shepherd is bringing Israel as a flock into this glorious mountain. Remember the most beloved psalm of all, Psalm 23. It's flowing from Exodus 15. The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. And though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, He is what? He's with me. And then he guides his sheep into his household. So some scholars believe that this song should be called the song of the mountain because it's referring to Lord, the Lord bringing his people to his mountain. And that's exactly what takes place in Exodus 19 as they arrive at the mountain of the Lord. Thus, we can see that the Exodus motif is much bigger than just the liberation of the Hebrews from the iron furnace of the Egyptians. It's about a great king forming a people by bringing them to the very abode of his presence. One scholar says, the goal of the Exodus, referring to verses 13 and then 17, the goal of the Exodus is thus the building of the Edenic sanctuary so that the Lord can dwell with his people just as he once was Yahweh Elohim to the first human beings. And we ought not to forget that all that's taking place here is not just for the sake of Israel, but it's for the sake of what? The nations, all humanity. That's very important. All that the Lord is doing here is not just for Israel. It's for all humanity that's in exile, for all the nations. All that he's doing, all these signs, is not just for Israel, but it's for his people that spread all over. And we know that because through the Exodus, Moses tells us that some aliens, some strangers came with them. They got to know Yahweh and they want to dwell with him. So they came out of Egypt with him. That's very important because God's going to make a covenant and reestablish Israel as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, to show forth to the other nations the knowledge and the glorious presence of this awesome Lord, Yahweh. 
And we know that because as soon as we come to the book of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 2, what happens? We have a very immoral lady, Joshua 1 and 2. And remember, Rahab. And what happens to Rahab? Look what she says. And as soon as we heard it, what? We heard what? About all that the Lord was doing with Israel. The crossing of the sea, the drowning of the Egyptians. And as soon as we heard, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord Yahweh, your God, His God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. And then what happens to Rahab? She knows Yahweh and she departs from that cursed place and moves to be with God's people and dwell with God. And then you read about Rahab, it's amazing. This stranger, this foreign, comes into the lineage of the Messiah through the Exodus. All that the Lord was doing there. So, the first 15 chapters, the first 18 chapters of Exodus prepare us for the covenant that God will make with Israel through Moses when they come to Mount Sinai. And that's Exodus 19. As they arrive in the mountain, God had promised Moses, I will bring you out of Egypt into my mountain so that you may what? Worship me. Serve me. They were serving. They were slaves of Pharaoh, building houses for Pharaoh. And now the Lord is redeeming them, making Himself known to them, to bring them into His place so they can be His servants and build His house for Him. But I would argue that above all, these chapters prepare us for the new covenant, where the mediator, Jesus Christ, comes to make known God like never before. So as you go to the Gospel of John, in John chapter 1, you have the prelude to the Gospel. We hear about Jesus revealing the Father, literally exaggerating the Father, making the Father known. And then John tells us that this Jesus came, He who was God Himself, came and tabernacle among his people, making the Father known and then dwelling, knowledge and presence. And not only coming as God himself, but also bringing many sons to live in the dwelling of God. And you read John chapter 1, we have John the Baptist declaring, Behold the Lamb, behold the Lamb taking us back all the way to Exodus 12. So we join our voices with the redeemed in the first Exodus, and we sing together the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Amen? And like in the first Exodus, and the first hymn that they were singing, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? All the other gods are carried around. Men carry their gods around. Who is like you? You carry us. 
you plant us. The song of Moses in, in, in chapter 15 never mentions Moses, besides that he sang that song. He did nothing. Israel did nothing. The Lord did everything. Who is like you, O Lord? All the other gods we carry around, this God carries us and brings us into His presence. He rescues us. He delivers us. Look at your lives before God coming in grace through Jesus. Ignorance of who He was. Not having a relationship with Him, of knowing Him, loving Him, treasuring Him, and not dwelling with His presence. That's the worst life anyone can have. And yet in grace, who is like you, O Lord, that you come and rescue us. You make yourself known to us, and then you embrace us and bring us into your presence. Father, we join our voices and sing, who is like you, that's a rhetorical question implying no one. No one is like you. You are indeed awesome, majestic in holiness, doing wonders. And we thank you that though so majestic, so glorious, yet You humble yourself to love these creatures like us. That's amazing. So we thank you. And help us to always sing the song of the Lamb. Who rescued us. Who saved us. Who planted us in His holy mountain. And we rejoice to come every Lord's Day. And celebrate and sing about you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.